This week's episode is sponsored by Visual Media Church. Visual Media Church is one of the fastest growing church media companies creating worship backgrounds, social media posts, stock video, stock photography, and templates for all your media needs. Go to visualmediachurch.com to sign up today, and when you do, use promo code CREATIVECHURCH to get 20% off all their memberships. That's CRTV Church for 20% off. Go and sign up today. Hey, creators, welcome to the Creative Church Podcast, uh, where each week we talk about the latest in Christian creative culture and explore the lives of prominent creatives. My name is Nick Gunner, and joining me today is the one, the only, Emily Cummins. How's it going? Hey, Emily. Um, to her digital right, my left, Ross Montgomery. Hi there. Hi there. <laughs> really peppy hi there. You're <laughs> really peppy. Like, I feel like you're really energetic. Real peppy. Um, all right, guys, welcome back. Uh, for those who didn't listen to last week's show, uh, this is part two of our unique show release. Once again, for those of you that don't know, we typically record on Mondays and we release on Thursdays and Fridays. However, due to Easter, we're recording two shows right back to back. So we literally just recorded the uh, episode 18. Now we're on to episode 19 and uh, we're going to be doing this only for two weeks. Um, but even though we're, you know, going to have a concentrated front matter, we're going to have an awesome two interviews planned for our listeners over the next couple of weeks. So uh, can't wait. Look forward to those. Um, but real quick, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even you can't even ask the question you're already laughing oh, i don't know goodness. why real quick everyone how's easter i'll let you know after it happens mm, mm. yep uh, i'm assuming that i'm assuming that emily just had a bat filled easter um mm. we're, we're projecting here because the easter doesn't bat. happen until sunday not the easter bunny but the easter the bat. easter bat. i feel like there's a new cadbury commercial there with oh that. my goodness Oh, yes. For those that get a little bit out of line at, at Emily's church, uh, they have a bat room in which they just take the take people to, visitors to, and uh, they just they leave them in there. Let's let the bats fly freely. And they no. see what happens. Okay. Um, have I told you guys lately how you are the brothers that I never had? <laughs> 100%. Every yes. week. You're every welcome. Week. Thanks, guys. <laughs> it's really It's really a scary, scary scenario over at uh over at emily's church no oh um, my goodness <laughs> so whatever you do avoid hope and ocala yeah <laughs> no, or just avoid or go avoid to ross and nick dun, dun, ross. Dun. <laughs> and eat all the oreos that you can <laughs> yes um so listeners real quick like you know just to cover our bases here this is like the closest thing you'll ever get to a live show like we said last week <laughs> because we're doing this as raw as humanly possible like we're going to keep in a lot of the edit uh, editing ticks that we normally take out and everything like that. So uh, enjoy this week's episode. Enjoy the past two weeks' episodes. Um, now, once again, we're going to be moving a little bit faster. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into trending. Uh, we do have a great show planned for everyone today. We're going to be joined by author Gregory Allen Thornberry. He is the author of a new book titled "Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music." Up next is trending. <laughs>
week we dive into last week's headlines, the ones that are important to us, and that we feel is impacting culture, church, or creators, and we discuss it. Everyone, welcome to Trending. Uh, Emily, what do you got for us this week? Yeah, so I read an article in Success Magazine on 10 steps, just 10, to master literally anything. So my question to you guys is, have either of you ever tried something new, not really succeeded at it, and then just like given up, but wish you would have been master at it? Yeah, uh, yeah I tried probably. to be a ferret stylist. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I try to be a bat wrangler. Oh um, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> he watched the office episode and was like, I know enough. Here I know. I, <laughs> I could have used your help a couple weeks ago, Nick. Yeah. Come on. Oh. Well, I, I wasn't a success at it, obviously. <laughs> I, I completely tanked. Well, you could have applied Success Magazine's uh, 10 steps to that like three weeks ago and helped me conquer <laughs> this skill set of yours. But basically, the magazine unpacks 10 steps to move you from where you are to actually mastering whatever skill set that you want through what they call progressive mastery. So engaging in the right monitoring and progress along the way. Um I thought that the article was, it was first off a really fast read, then second, it was really practical. So the 10 steps were things that you could apply like right now. Um, So I picked three that I really liked and that I'm going to apply. So the first step was determine the skill you want to master. Dun, dun, dun. That is definitely step one. Um, So for me, it's controlling my heart rate while I run. Um, I thought it would be how to eat more Oreos in one sitting. (laughs) uh, Well, actually, whenever you said controlling your heart rate, I was thinking while I eat Oreos. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, of course. I have to to master this skill because I eat too many Oreos. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real problem here. My Um, heart hurts. But yeah, <laughs> I'm only 26. I can't know. So I went on a run this Saturday and I got this new Garmin running watch and a heart rate monitor. And my heart rate was so like off the charts faster than what it should have been. So it brought me to the realization of how I need to become more aware of my heart rate and then actually controlling it. Um, so I want to master that skill. Which leads me into the next two steps that from this article I'm going to try. So measuring your progress and getting outside feedback. That's why I got the tools, the heart rate monitor and the watch, so I can actually track my heart rate while I'm running and then begin controlling it from there. Um, And then the third one was socialize your learning by practicing or competing with others. So um, my dad is actually an Ironman. He's a triathlete. He's a marathoner. Yeah. And wait, did you just say your dad is Ironman? Yeah. (laughs) Surprise. Father is Tony Stark. Wow. (laughs) Hey, Ross, can you get her dad on the Pop Cultures podcast? Um, No, my dad is a Florida Ironman, you know, like all the biking, running and all of that. Yeah, and, all, uh, of it. all of all that. Of it. All yeah. Of it. yeah. And uh, actually, April 16th of this year, he's running the Boston Marathon. Wow. Yeah. So he knows everything there is to know about running. And um, I've started socializing my learning and competing with him a little bit. So now I'm like tracking my heart rate with how his heart rate is. And I mean, I know, you know, we're two different people and, you know, all that good stuff, but um, learning from him in terms of what I should be doing in terms of my heart rate. Um, so that's been fun. And full disclosure, I follow Emily's dad on, on social media 
um, for some weird reason. Um, I don't actually know why. <laughs> he just, he's on, so I follow him on social media. Uh, anyway, I see him run a lot, and uh, and I'm gonna tell you right now, Emily. I I don't know if I could compete with him. I would I would, <laughs> I would really slow down because that because I feel like his resting heartbeat is one. Like he is just <laughs> he has to run in the morning just to get it going because he is like super super athletic. He's yes, awesome. he is. He's it's, intense. It's, it's cool. crazy. So cool. Yeah. yeah. So to learn that he's an Iron Man is 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 even better. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ross, what do you got for us this week? Um, it's it's a little bit shorter here, but I think it's a great reminder. Um, the title of the article is "Channeling Cultural Creativity" um, from Business Live uh, article that I found, and it talks about how businesses are really and brands are getting into not just making products for profit, but they're really getting into meaningful connections with uh, consumers um, to affect sustainable social change um, at the same time, kind of being a little more socially conscious. And, you know, that's not a bad thing, but, uh, you know, I think it's a great reminder to our churches, like, we, we should have great social impact as well. Like, not that we have a product, but, you know, think about how we do come across this thing. Some people can feel like there's too much marketing in ministry or mm-hmm. maybe there's not enough. Like, hey, you guys really need to do more or something like that. But there was a quote in there that really stuck out to me and I think can just kind of be a good reminder to kind of look at how we do things and and know that we have the greatest thing to share um, and how we can do that in unique and new ways. But the, the quote was from someone they interviewed, and I apologize again, we're famous for not being able to pronounce names on here, <laughs> and I don't even want to attempt it because I will slaughter the well, name, but we, you, you we, can go check it we out. We took the vowels out of creative, so oh I mean, gosh. obviously we can't pronounce <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, but anyways, the quote is, social capital is the favorable outcome of social investment. Purpose-led businesses that are... Sus- purpose-led businesses that are society-facing have created license they see they spell it like south african or something that's who they interviewed social capital is the favorable outcome of social investment purpose-led businesses that are society facing have created license for their brands to engage with consumers on a deeper more lasting level the starting point is always a clear purpose and i think churches are very well known for trying to have clear purpose but i think sometimes you know our our cleverness and creativity can sometimes get in the way of just telling a simple story, mm. whether it's with video, with audio, with a song, with um, an environment or, or something like that, or how we do first impressions or what, you know, something like that, I feel like can get in the way of like, here's our purpose. Are we achieving this purpose? And so if you keep that in front, uh, I think it's super important. It was just a great reminder I ran across and, and thought was worth bringing up. It's That's interesting awesome. that uh, businesses are, you know, they're going beyond the products and delivering these uh, social, uh, what do you call it, social capital? Is, what they, is that what they say? Yeah, social capital, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, why we don't have a product as a church, I feel like that's the thing that we should be known for is our social capital, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's, that's the one exactly thing it. that a church should be producing is how much social good are we doing? How much community good are we doing? You know, not only yeah. to reach people with the message of Christ, but because that's our purpose here on this earth is to is to bring heaven down. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like you said, just kind of bringing those stories and seeing what we can do to really highlight the social capital that most of our churches are already known for, are already doing. We're just not doing a good job of really telling the story of what we're doing. Because yeah. sometimes, like you said, creativity is getting in the way. Yeah. I have a pastor friend that uh, had a really great, simple way to look at it. He said, if the church I'm leading shuts down tomorrow, will the community notice? 
Mm, yeah. Dang. And he asked himself that before every major initiative. Yeah. Holy crap. That is, I mean, write that on a freaking wall. That's <laughs> yep. amazing. I mean, literally write that on a wall. That is yeah, so you, good. If, yep. the, if the church you work for closed mm-hmm. down today, oh man, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Would the community notice? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That is impactful. Um, well, there you have it. Like I said, we're moving up really fast today. We're, we're hopped up on energy. Um, <laughs> next up is our interview with Greg Gregory Allen Thornberry. I wonder if he's related to Nigel. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude, you went there. I did. Uh, this week's interview is with Gregory Allen Thornberry. Gregory has been a college professor, dean, and president of the King's College in New York City, a popular writer and speaker on philosophy, religion, and contemporary culture. He currently serves at the New York Academy of Art. His new book, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music, is out now. Here's part of our conversation with Gregory Allen Thornberry. Literally, my first question after kind of digging into this book and and just realizing the depth it has was, how do you even decide to tell this story of Larry Norman? Well, I decided to tell it because when I saw the embarrassment of riches, which was his personal archives, I, I felt like it was incumbent upon me to do something with it. Um, the family entrusted me with it to tell the story in as best a way as possible. And I mean, Larry has uh, a large following. Uh, He has a lot of very obsessed fans. But my real interest in doing this was to tell the story more broadly, to draw people into both the 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 nature of his life, his witness, all of the controversies, and to really prompt self-examination. And this story, I think, definitely does that. And it's getting a lot of attention from people outside the Christian world, which is, of course, something that very much Larry himself wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm 35 years old, so I'm kind of on the older millennial side, but I do remember the kind of devil's music, rock and roll, kind of late 80s, early 90s, that still had a, a a feeling of that, which is encompassed in the book. And you were extremely detailed um, in a lot of the things going on with Larry, his journey. Um, what, what did you find would be the hardest thing to organize kind of as you created um, this book to tell this narrative in a, you know, logical, chronological order? Well, it was a gargantuan undertaking <laughs> yeah. because there, there are a couple of things that are, are difficult with modern biographies. You know, the one thing is that you have a, a massive amount of archival material that had never been 
gone through. I mean, this is a biography of discovery. Most of the biographies we read today are things that people have researched before, dealt with mm. before. Mm. So this is really the first attempt. And I, I went through hundreds of boxes of material. And this is sort of the the opening salvo. You know, I, I hope that someone maybe goes on, uh, you know, sometime in the future if they want sort of the completest you know, um, down to every little narrow detail kind of biography. But <laughs> it was very difficult to, to wrap my arms around all of that. But the other thing, too, was just to place the whole story in its cinematic scope because you have the, the life story of someone who was at the cross-section of a remarkable time in the nation's history and American Christianity and was a prime mover in helping make a lot of that happen. And it was, uh, it was a, a real test to try to write a book that was cinematic that people wouldn't want to put down. So there was a lot that got left on the cutting room floor. My first manuscript was 40,000 words longer than what actually wound up being in, in the book, but I wanted people to, to feel the tension of someone who, like Larry Norman, who was walking this high wire act between the secular music world and Hollywood on the one side, and a church who very much at that time did think that rock and roll was the devil's music. And the reason why we don't feel that pressure as much anymore is because Larry Norman came along. Yeah. I mean, tension, definitely you get across in the book, kind of epitomize Larry's life, um, even with your chapter titles reflecting Jesus verses <laughs> um, and then different topics, which I thought was extremely clever. It was it was a lot of fun kind of as you're looking through the chapter, uh, the, the contents, and you're like, oh, man, I can't wait to get to that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> They're all <laughs> set up like court cases, you know. <laughs> no, it was really interesting. Um, but one of the quotes that stood out to me from Larry was that um, interview he had with Thoreau. Um, and uh, just, I think it kind of summed up a lot of things about what he was trying to do and, and how he grew. But um, when he was talking about the irony, um, it kind of came in the sad irony of almost all Christian music uh, is that it preaches salvation to people that already have it while the people who need the message don't usually hear it. Um, and I thought that was, you know, it, it seems like there's even in today's culture, some of that tension. So what do you think? Um, do you think he was just simply living that tension or do you think he kind of maybe saw ahead of his time as to what was going on? Well, he was way ahead of his time. And, you know, the cliche that we often hear, we've heard all our lives as Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. But what Larry saw was that Christians are basically of the world, but not in it. You know, they're, they're characterized by the same kinds of, you know, problems and sins and jealousies that the rest of the world is, but they're talking to themselves in an echo chamber. And in that Royal Albert Hall concert that Larry performs where he says, you know, I think this is going to be the last concert that I do like this because I don't want it to be said that I'm making money off of Jesus. Um, 
he didn't himself fully live up to that mandate, but he understood that the problem was that uh, the people that actually needed to hear about Jesus were not hearing it because the Christians were all infighting and bickering and having their own internecine internal conversation. And um, at least he fought the good fight valiantly to try to change that picture. But it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of debate as to whether or not um, he or we are, are able to do that yeah. today. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I, and that's what I kept thinking as, as I was reading through those sections was, you know, this, this all happening back in the seventies, you know, again, I wasn't alive back then, but you know, I'm like, man, there's still some of that same conversation going on today. And I think, you know, in, in some healthy ways and maybe some unhealthy ways it's happening today. But, um, I, I do want to, there was a question I had, it, it's kind of a little off topic now, but I want to get back how long did it take you to write this book? Well, there's there's a couple ways to answer that. I, I first saw all of the material um, back in 2011, 2012. Um, and I realized sort of the scope of it. And I began to start going through it. Um, and I would say that I really decided that I was going to seriously work on the biography in 2000 and, and uh Fourteen, and I signed the contract with uh, uh, Convergent Random House in 2015. So it's really been several years. It took a long time to read through all these handwritten notes and go through passports and plane tickets and journals and diaries and audio tapes and and uh, and so forth. So the actual writing of it took about uh, a year and a half. But, um, you know, I spent a lot of time just going through the archival material. Uh, what, through all of that, stuck out most to you about Larry Norman and his story? Well, I mean, I think the, the most important thing was that um, I say early in the book he was a holy fool. He was someone who was trying to do something that nobody was really interested in at the time. The you know he was uh, accepted as a peer in this remarkable moment in American musical history the the ascendancy of the Bay Area psychedelic rock movement he's partying with you know Neil Young and and uh, Stephen Stills from uh, from Buffalo Springfield and and he's playing on bills with Jimmy. Hendrix and Janis Joplin and The Doors, and um, he's right at the nexus of all this. He's working at Capitol Records on the early rock musicals before Tommy ever came out from The Who. As a matter of fact, you know, people was were doing a, a rock opera and they were opening up for The Who, and you know, Tommy came after people wrote the the and Larry wrote the epic, so. On the one hand, he's he's has this amazing opportunity to really sort of make it as a as a rock star, and yet he decides that he's got to talk about Jesus. And the most remarkable thing to me is that every every one of us has that artist inside. You know, Picasso talks about the fact that everyone deep down is an artist, but each one of us takes a gamble on what to say with our life and our art. 
And the question is whether or not that's a good gamble. So Larry gambles on Jesus in Hollywood on Capitol Records. And the secular rock industry is wondering why he's wasting his considerable talent on this enterprise. Meanwhile, the church is over here saying, this is worldliness, this is ungodliness, we don't want to have anything to do with this, we don't want to even pretend like this countercultural revolution is even happening. We want to stay in our holy huddle here and, um, you know, our stained glass prison. And uh, so Larry was sort of facing impossible odds and, and sailed into that you know, sort of fearlessly. I think that's the most remarkable thing I took away from it. And it was so hot that, as you see in the book, he he almost burned up as a result of that over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, you talk a lot about um, his parental relationship with Joe. And um, that kind of made me wonder. It, it sounds like there's a few times that that almost held him back in some instances. Um you say he was fearless in a lot of ways. Do you think he ever feared failure or just kind of accepted it as part of the creative process? I think he accepted it. I think he was accustomed to failure. Um, I think he got used to it. I think uh, it's there's a tension here because in a way, Larry was very confident in his abilities. He certainly saw the reaction that he had on people. Um, he was sort of an underground sensation. And yet when you look at like his record sales, they weren't, you know, they were, they were decent, but you know, he didn't have any, yeah, other than the, the top 20 hit that he had with his first band people. It's not like he had any sort of breakthrough, you know, records that hit the secular charts. Um, and you know, just like every other rock biography, there were problems with the record companies. You know, his his sort of signature breakthrough record so long ago, The Garden, came out at a time when his label MGM was folding or being bought out and, and sold. And so sort of a missed opportunity there. Um, and uh, it's interesting that someone like a, a Billy Graham would say to Larry, you know, you need maybe you should not talk about Jesus so much and try to write a big hit, hit record that would get everybody to pay attention to you so that you'd have this much bigger platform. Some really interesting dynamics in this book with faith and art and culture. Is there a particular anecdotal story or anything that stood out to you that that you feel was a one of the biggest shifts in his in his life and career as a musician? I think the there, there's a lot of them. Oh, there's a lot. I, there, yes. <laughs> there, there are so many crazy stories in this book and places that he finds himself and the people that he comes across. I call mm. him the Forrest Gump of American Christianity because he oh, seems to he, he he rubs shoulders with you know everyone from President Jimmy Carter to actors like Dudley Moore to the producer for Leon Russell and you know the Moody Blues. Denny Cordell, but I think the thing, the the discovery that I made that was was uh, so insightful for me was I I was able to ascertain that people was placed on this bill at the Human Being, which was the precursor to the Summer of Love, and 
the the event that happened had Timothy Leary at it, and uh, it was nationally covered by the media. And People was on this bill with all of the big acts of the day, the Grateful Dead, and and Larry is standing there, you know, sort of in the artist area, and he sees Janis Joplin walk up to the microphone, and and certainly he would have known that she was, you know, strung out on heroin, and he looks to the foot of her microphone stand, and she's got a bottle of Southern Comfort and a Dixie cup that she's you know, pouring the whiskey into. And that's where the song, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus, He's Got the Answer, uh, comes from. And it's a love letter to Janis Joplin. But the, the tragedy is, is that that song does not reach Janis Joplin in time, um, you know, before she, uh, before she takes her own life. And so it, it's, it's moments like that where it's, you know, the old principle of 80% of success in life is just showing up in the right place at the right time. And, and Larry was actually, he was actually there in that arena. And um, it, it's difficult for Christians to, to have a seat at the table. And he definitely had a seat at the table. So in light of, you know, current culture, where we are today, as someone maybe reads this book with, with today's context, what do you believe the big takeaway uh, would be from Larry's influence in his story? I think that uh, anytime you put yourself forward as someone with a, a prophetic voice, you have to be very careful at the role that the maven plays. Um, and that's difficult because at, on the one hand, Larry is definitely challenging the institutional church of his time and for good reason. Uh, there were, there were lots of reasons for that, but at the same time, he was not surrounded by and hedged about by people that could keep him accountable. He sort of sat on his own fence post and whistled his own tune. And going it alone like that, uh, even though he had great Christian friends and, and you know, he, he was a churchgoer, but um, it's, it's very difficult to take on the burden and mantle of being a, a prophet in, uh, in the modern world. And so... It's a cautionary tale in that respect. Um, in so many, many ways, he was a smashing success. And in other ways, um, probably needed, um, needed to have the sorts of people uh, around him that uh, were able to, to help him survive that inferno that he found himself in. Yeah, you, de you definitely make that clear throughout because um, he talks about feeling isolated or the book, you know, as you as you are going through this narrative talks about the isolation that, that he is projecting and and all of that. And um, kind of to me, what came across was and, and maybe maybe he, he kind of knew what he was doing or just didn't care. But it seemed like the sub subversive nature of what he felt his calling was. 
um, kind of caused a little bit of that. And yeah, maybe he knew I'm just being subversive against everything and trying to, you know, challenge the status quo. Um, and then just didn't care that the burnout was coming or didn't see it coming. I, I wonder how that, um, came across as you were digging into his life. Well, it definitely took a toll because in addition to trying to do this himself and sort of having this massive platform that he had on his hands post the, you know, Jesus movement, when at that point, his first record upon this rock was, I mean, it was in the hands of seemingly every Christian teenager at at the time, although exact numbers are hard to come by, his... You know, his album In Another Land was a great seller, sold, you know, uh, somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 copies. So he's got this big platform, and then he decides to bring people along with him to try to have a group of disciples, an artist colony, Solid Rock. And that, uh, I think, proved maybe to be a fatal mistake, because one of the things I say in the book is be careful who you inspire to have a dream because if you bring people along and you tell them the same thing that happened for you can happen for them, if that doesn't work out, you become the living embodiment of the fact that dreams don't come true. And then there's a lot of jealousy and resentment that that begins to set in and a lot of finger pointing and, and that's not a very good witness for the gospel. To find out more about Gregory and to read our Cup for Time interview with him, visit the podcast episode page on our website at creativechurch.com. That's crtvchurch.com. Welcome to Reply All, where each week we typically pose a question and give you the chance to answer online in our Grave Talks group. However, last week we didn't ask a question because we literally uh, recorded last week's show five minutes ago. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we don't have any answers. Uh, so, uh, we're going to skip this little segment and move right into this week's, uh, reply all question. So this week we wanted to ask you, what is your most memorable Easter memory? Emily Ross, what was your most memorable Easter memory? It could be from when you're like a child. It could be real spiritual, like an uh, event you had. It could be, you know, recent. It could be, you know, if you're, if you're psychic, it could be from this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just took, um my kids to a easter egg hunt which you know hunt means put the eggs in a field where they can easily pick them up um so uh we just did that with them um so it's kind of interesting to see them um kind of learn about easter uh our oldest is going to be five wow here shortly um in may but uh yeah just kind of even talking with her about Jesus and, and everything like that. It's it's really interesting to watch her grasp these concepts about Easter. So uh, I think right now that's kind of the most East, uh, memorable Easter other than, you know, growing up having to all get in your Easter best and take a picture, which I hated every oh, yeah. every that's, year. That's mm. awful. That's the worst. That's like torture. Like, you know, that's... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Ross. <laughs> Emily, what, what was yours? Um, what was your most memorable mine Easter? Mine would probably be in the last two years... Um, so at Hope, we've been really intentional with, like, who are you inviting? Who are you partnering with to discover hope in Christ? And um, so, you know, like, 
uh, just thinking through who we're going to invite as a family, um, who we're going to invite as friends. And I think often it's easy when we work in church to not really think of who we're personally going to invite because um, we're leveraging tools for other people. And uh, so t- the last two years, my family have invited just friends from the community and they've come to a gathering and then we'll always grab lunch with them afterwards, whether it be at our house or like at a, a cool spot downtown. And that has always been really special because it reminds me like we need to be doing what we're leading people to do as well. And the bigger picture of like Easter is not an event that we put on. Um, it's a story that we're living in. And um, so those are just really memorable and special. Um, I I love those. And I'm, I'm excited to do that this year too. Very cool. I, I can't nail down a specific one, like a, like a hardcore one. But I do remember as a child growing up, Every single Easter, my parents would hide eggs and then wake us up, and we'd have to go and search for them all around the house. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 it happened between like the ages of seven and thirteen. I don't, I don't actually remember the exact dates there, but uh, yeah, I, I just always remember that. That was always a fun time. We always did that. It's kind of like our tradition, you know. We hide eggs. Uh, but fast forward to a couple years ago. Uh, <laughs> My parents are are kind of practical jokers, um, and they don't listen to the podcast. Uh, So, (laughs) (laughs) jokes on on them. Uh, No, uh, so they had us all go out and do like this like nighttime Easter egg hunt where they hid eggs outside, and they're like, "Oh, you guys are going to go out and you know." And this was literally like two years ago. Okay, so this is you know, and my my family is we're pretty large family, so we have I'm the oldest, and I was like 21 at the time, and then the youngest of us all was like uh, 11. Wow. So, uh, you know, we kind of range in years. And so there's five of us. So we're all out there in the backyard. We're hunting the Easter eggs. And the next thing I know, a water balloon smacks the back <gasps> of my head. Oh, no. <laughs> my parents on the porch throwing water balloons at us as we hunted eggs. Oh, no. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. The worst part was there was probably like 10 eggs out there. Oh, gosh. They just did it to throw the water balloon. Oh my goodness. Um, and I mean, I don't know if that's really good parenting. I, I honestly, I'm a little nervous, uh, that I might need to go therapy. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I definitely remember my, my, we used to do like the decorate the boiled eggs and then, Mm -hmm. and then hide those. And, you know, then you find some a year or so later. (laughs) Um, yeah, that definitely happened in my household. Wait, your, your parents would do the plastic plastic eggs? What? No, man. Why would they do the boiled this is, eggs? I am 10 years older than you guys, so... Oh, they didn't have plastic happened. eggs back then. Yeah. <laughs> no, they truly, oh, no. they truly, they weren't, they truly weren't too popular, or maybe my parents just wanted to do boiled eggs. <laughs> back and, in Ross's day, yeah, they didn't have the plastic eggs. Apparently not. That's how they did it. We would decorate boiled yeah, eggs. They got and the I boiled remember, eggs, hiding them around I remember the one year we cracked it open bad. <laughs> Yeah, we we're like, oh, that's that's from last Easter, and my mom was like, oh, oh I forgot no. where I hid that, and it was in the house, so it never smelled. But yeah, we found it, and it was quite interesting. Wow, it's bold rotten egg here. It's the it's the winner. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, you can answer by joining us uh, on that Creative joke Talks. wasn't funny. Uh, yeah, the joke wasn't funny. <laughs> Ross was not very happy with that joke. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, if you want to join in with the conversation, you can do so by heading over to our Facebook group and joining Creative Talks. That's one word, CRTV Talks. Uh, on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. There are a few great ways that you can share your appreciation for the Creative Church podcast. First, subscribe and ask your favorite podcatcher. We also release all of our episodes on our website at creativechurch.com. 
You can also review this podcast and show us some rating star love on iTunes so we can get more exposure and more people can find us and determine whether we raise or lower their heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also find out where Ross hid the eggs. Uh, <laughs> lastly, consider sharing this episode on social media. You can find us by searching our handle, Creative Church, that's one word, CRTV Church. Special thanks to Gregory for joining us today. Check out all that he's doing by heading over to our podcast episode page on our website at creativechurch.com. Also, special thanks to Visual Media Church for sponsoring today's show. Do us a big favor and go check them out and snag that 20% discount when you use offer code Creative Church. That's one word, all caps, CRTV Church. In the meantime, I'm Nick Gunner. I'm Emily Cummins. And I'm going to sit over here with my spoiled boiled egg. Ugh. I'm going to sit over here with my spoiled boiled egg. You enjoy that way too much. It's not as funny <laughs> as you that think voice, it is. though. That. No, but that it voice. is kind of funny. <laughs> That's how I picture people from Kansas talking, hey there. How y'all we doing? Were, we're not the South. I mean, we're definitely top of the Bible belt. Yeah. yeah. But... Well, okay. well, anyway. Uh, and uh, we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Creative Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at creativechurch.com. That's crtvchurch.com. Also, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Creative Church.